and welcome to a very special edition of Eyewitness Beauty. Why is it special, do you ask? Because I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Creekbaum. Annie, I'm happy that you've made it through the darkest period of coronavirus and out the other end, other side. I guess. I don't really know what's going on. With what? Because I don't think I'm supposed to get tested again because I'm just going to test positive for a while. Yeah, the CDC guidelines say that you should be self-isolated for 10 days from your positive diagnosis or positive test. And then you can wait 10 days as long as you haven't had a fever, which I I don't think you have for like... I haven't had any symptoms for, for over 10 days. Okay, so then I think you're good to go. I mean, wear a mask. Wear two. Right, wear two masks. I mean, I have no social life, no friends, so I guess I'm just going to keep isolating. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my, can I just tell you about the little conundrum that I'm having in my life? What? So we have Neil and Radish. They are both sub seven pounds, just to set the stage, toy poodles. Rescued They're not. from Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> rescued from? <laughs> uh, rescued from a life of luxury on a farm in Santa Barbara, California. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Neil exhibits aggression. He has nipped like people coming into the house. He, up until yesterday, had never nipped anyone besides people that he didn't know. And yesterday, Casey tried to like take this blanket that he was like chewing on out of his mouth and he like bit Casey. <gasps> and again, sub seven pounds. He's not drawing blood. You know, those are tiny little teeth on a tiny little face. of the time, Neil is a literal angel. Like you could hold him like a baby and like all he wants to do is like be loved by you. The other 5% of the time, he's like a wild beast, like Cujo. You can't control him. And I don't really know what to do with the baby. Obviously, Neil is not going to be our babysitter. And obviously, we're not going to have like Neil and the baby just like chill by themselves in the nursery. I think it's going to be okay. What's the worst that could happen? Neil bites the baby's face off. That's not going to happen. Are you taking the dogs with you here? No. So anyway, so I was going to like basically do like a scared straight program with Neil where like he goes to like... pound? Like one... (laughs) (laughs) And all the dogs like... (laughs) Scream in his face like, you don't fucking get it. (laughs) Uh, No. You don't Um, want this life. You want this life? You, you get like to bite for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We were gonna just take him to this like really expensive guy who like deals with troubled dogs, but like he literally asked for a picture in the application, which we sent in. It's like a picture of a six-pound toy poodle, <laughs> and it's like this guy's like probably dealing with you know like really like horribly abused like pit bulls, and then like we're like giving him a six-pound toy poodle. So anyway, so we don't know what we're going to do with Neil. Radish is a perfect literal angel. Well, I would say you could um, have him stay at mine for a bit, but um, he likes to pee on things. Oh, you also can't bring dogs on the on the aircraft anymore. What are you talking about? You didn't hear about this? As of like February 1st or something, the last airline has forbid emotional support animals. So you can no longer bring an emotional support animal like with you unless they fit in a bag underneath the seat. Don't you think, I feel like there's like a private jet program that transports dogs. It's called Pet Airways and it's been docked because of coronavirus. This is as of January 26, 2021. According to NBC News, Southwest is the last airline to ban emotional support animals. 
The airline said Monday that it will let passengers bring trained service dogs in the cabin, but it will no longer accept support animals starting March 1st. Customers who want to bring a dog or cat on board as a pet will have to pay a fee, and the animal must be kept in a carrier that fits under an airplane seat. I have such strong feelings about this. I think it's absolute fucking bullshit. If you put your dog under the seat, you're using your paid-for space in the plane for your luggage with your dog in it. You know, it's $175 for one way, too. <laughs> Is that not insane? That's more yeah, than that's my insane. ticket most of the time. Yeah. They should also ban, like, loud children. They should, if they're banning, like, that kind of stuff. I mean, like, Can't honestly, wait till you have to travel with your small child. <laughs> did I ever tell you the story? When I was flying back from Germany, I spent, like, four weeks traveling in Europe with my ex-boyfriend at the time after college. And we had like hugged and kissed and like I was getting on a plane from Berlin to Heathrow to New York. And on my flight from Heathrow to New York, I sit down next to this couple and they start like, you know, whispering to each other. I'm like not really paying attention to it. And then like they switch, like the wife is sitting next to me. I'm in the window seat. She's in the middle seat. The husband's on the aisle. And then the husband and the wife switch seats so that the husband's next to me. And they're like still whispering. They bring over a flight attendant and like they like talk to the flight attendant. And like then the flight attendant comes over to me and she's like, excuse me, sir, there's like a smell coming from you that (laughs) is making this man's wife sick. Could you go into the bathroom and wash under your arms? <laughs> this is all happening within four feet of each other. Like how? Are you? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Were they so just like looking the my, other way as she was looking? Kind of. Yeah. So my entire life flashes before my eyes. And anyone who knows me knows that like there is zero chance that I like reek so badly that I'm making a woman sick. I like I'm a very hygienic person. I also like wear so much fragrance and whatever. I had also just been with my boyfriend for four weeks and we had like been sleeping together and kissing and whatever. Like it wasn't like I was unwashed and like getting on a plane. Like I was put together. But like what do you do in that situation? So I got up. (laughs) I walked into the airplane laboratory. I took a really harsh look at myself in the mirror (laughs) and I started washing under my arms. Wait, be honest though. Did you smell? Did you? No. So and then what? Story so short, then you go back to your seat. So like, I have to guess, and then we have a fucking seven-hour flight that we have to sit next to each other. Me having heard this, but long story short, like the woman ended up getting in a fight with the woman behind her. They were gunning to like get upgraded to get brought into first class. So for like the last like twenty minutes, they like got to sit in first class. So I think it really wasn't about me. I think it was like a long game, and I was a pawn. However, it was like <laughs> one of like the most traumatic flying experiences oh, of my life. Nick, I'm so yeah. sorry. Should we get into top stories? Yeah. Let's quit pontificating. <laughs> so Alta Beauty this week announced that Tracy Ellis Ross, the actress and entrepreneur, she's the founder of Pattern Beauty, which is a hair care brand, is now going to advise them on diversity and inclusion. We were both wondering sort of what this means, because usually like a celebrity working with a brand is more of like an endorsement deal. It's always like a marketing thing. It's right. not like just a behind the scenes 
role. Right. She's so busy, is she not? She's so busy. And this somehow seems like more of a behind the scenes role. It says that she looks forward to formalizing an already existing dialogue and partnership around diversity and inclusion with Mary Dillon, who's Ulta CEO and the Ulta Beauty team. The work requires commitment and accountability from Ulta Beauty to ensure measurable goals are achieved. I'm hopeful and optimistic our work together will create foundational change. And this is part of a larger initiative by Ulta to do better in terms of diversity, inclusion. They want to double the number of Black-owned beauty brands in their assortment. Yes, but they don't have plans yet to join the 15% pledge, which Sephora has done, which would require them to devote 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses. So by doubling the amount of Black-owned brands in Ulta, that's only going to get them to about 5% of in-store Black-owned brands. But they are um, going to spend $4 million to market the brands that they are going to sell. They include Minted Cosmetics, Keys Soul Care by our friend Alicia Keys, and Black Girl Sunscreen, which has quickly, I think, achieved cult status over the past couple of years. People love that brand. Yeah, we're trying to get the founder on the podcast. Yeah, where are you with that? Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> but yes, this is a lot of work they're doing. I don't know what, maybe it's like a operational reason why they can't join the 15% pledge. You'd think, you know, Alton and Sephora are neck and neck and fierce competitors. And, and you'd think that they would be trying to best or beat each other at any of these kind of metrics. So this is a beginning, but I bet there's a lot more in store. So word on the street is that Jessica Alba's Honest Beauty will be IPOing. And they're apparently seeking a $2 billion valuation. Previously, they had been looking for a sale that would have valued the company at $1 billion. I know that there have been down rounds with raising money for Honest. It's been over a billion. It's been way under a billion. Explain a down round. A down round means that if you were valued at a billion point five in 2015, and then in 2017, you raise more money but the investors don't believe that the company is still worth the same or more money. And they would say, oh, actually, this is worth $500 million. And they would value the company at that, invest at that, meaning they would get more equity. Mm -hmm. Then that would be a down round. Got it. So basically what happened was in July 2015, they announced that they were moving their headquarters to Playa Vista and then announced a new round of funding generating an additional $100 million of venture capital, which implied a valuation of $1.7 billion. Then flash forward to October 2017, the Honest Company closed a Series E round of funding, and each subsequent round of funding is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. After settling two lawsuits in the summer of 2017, the valuation was set as at $19.60 per share, down from the Series D shares sold in 2015 at $45, so less than half the valuation. So the company's value was well below a billion dollars. So now they're back up, or at least they're they're attempting to start at a $2 billion IPO. So... We'll see. Watch the space. It's interesting. It's also interesting to think about how the Robin Hoods of the world, the Robin Hood app, have democratized the stock market and like whether brands that consumers are more comfortable with, you know, know more about, hear more about, more familiar with might do better in the stock market because it's like, oh, I know that company. I want to put some money in, you know? Yeah, but I guess on the flip side, in startup land, which I think it's not slowing down. People, entrepreneurs are still launching new startups and new businesses. But I think we had like a big startup boom, what, like five, six, seven, eight years ago. And we've seen 
the rise and fall of WeWork, right? Trying to IPO, raised way too much money, spent too much money, and didn't have a solid business. Yeah. So I think on the flip side, being a shareholder at some of these companies, the idea of IPOing feels very scary when your business is not necessarily defensible. So interesting to watch. I always like wonder about these smaller, relatively smaller brands IPOing. So yeah, I mean, it can pay off, but it's a risk. It's definitely riskier than being acquired, right? Because then it's just like everybody gets a nice big fat check. Brands that are having trouble being acquired for different reasons are, as we spoke about with the Billy issue being blocked by the FTC, the same thing happened to Harry's razors. And there's a little bit of a shakeup happening in the men's uh, shaving world right now. So I didn't realize this, but they are launching other brands under the like Harry's umbrella. Um, I Well, obviously they had Flamingo, which was just basically Harry's for women, but it's part of their like core competency, right? Like making shaving products. But they just launched a scalp care line for women called Headquarters. Get it? Yeah. So this is in response to them not being able to be acquired, right? So they have by to- Edgewell. By Edgewell. So they're going to have to like grow their business another way. And they're also looking to acquire brands as well. This is an interesting move. I mean, Jeff Rader is one of the co-founders of Harry's. He was also a co-founder of Warby Parker, a really smart, really great guy. I mean, I guess like when the FTC blocks the acquisition of your company, you have to sort of figure out how else can we grow? How else can we create value? Obviously, like launching in white space categories, like maybe scalp care is, is one idea and then becoming more of a conglomerate. Oh, I forgot. They also have a cat food brand. Did you know that? Harry's? Which one? It's called Cat Person. So (laughs) Cat Person came out of Harry's Labs. I guess that's their brand incubator. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't an acquisition. They created it. And then Harry's Inc. is also launching extensions of the Harry's brand, deodorants, hair care. I think they already had like some men's skincare. There's a couple of articles about the turn of events happening for razor companies right now on the Glossy, including Schick. Schick. According to the Glossy, they're rebranding. It's a very subtle rebrand, though. And it's just their Hydro franchise, and they're rebranding it to Chic Hydro Skin Comfort. So there you go. It's more like self-care sounding. The funny thing about that is they probably did so many studies and had like so many focus groups about the word comfort. Does it feel too feminine? Like, does it feel like... <laughs> Especially like when you think of old shaving commercials, it was always like, yeah. chic, 18 blades, like yeah. <laughs> sharp it's as like fuck, going- <laughs> <laughs> comes with band That was my joke about like, if you ever read the copy on the back of a men's marketed body wash it's like slap it on and fling it off and like in women's it's like envelop your body in the comfort of flowers <laughs> well get this so they're actually <laughs> launching a new global ad campaign do you want to hear what the tagline is yeah your skin has feelings <laughs> <laughs> honestly that's kind of genius and they're also they're returning to television advertisements speaking of commercials which they hadn't done for three years. I bet there's going to be a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah. Speaking of the Super Bowl. We're having some good um, transitions this week, Nick. (laughs) Yeah. This is a a bit out of left field, the constellation of brands and personalities that have come together. Dolly Parton, 
through a deal brokered by none other than IMG, is working with Squarespace to launch her first perfume called, obviously, Dolly, that will launch in July, but it will appear in a Super Bowl commercial for Squarespace. Sorry, what? How many brands are <laughs> So that's... <laughs> hold on, hold on, ready? That's Dolly Parton, okay. IMG, uh-huh. Squarespace, uh-huh. and the Super Bowl. Got it. And did I see... I think I saw something that said that she actually re-recorded her song 9 to 5 for a Super yeah. Bowl spot for Squarespace. <laughs> and so now it's going to be from 5 to 9. Like Nick's face like right now is... <laughs> His nose is like completely crinkled up. <laughs> okay. Here's my like question. And I was like reading this article actually this week about how a lot of during the year 2020, or I think it was like maybe in the last couple of years, a lot of musicians, including Bob Dylan, have really cashed in on and sold the rights to their work to like a record label. Bob Dylan sold it to like Universal or something like that for like hundreds of millions of dollars. And like, it really got me thinking, these people who already have so much money, why are they still trying to make more? Dolly Parton, why is she like I don't, doing a Squarespace I don't think we need to knock Dolly. She's done a lot of great things with her money. I think she probably has given away more than she's spent on herself and her family. Yes. So, so maybe let's hope that it's all one big sort of charitable. I have a feeling it probably effort. is. The bottle does look like a Mariah Carey collab. It is a pink crystal butterfly. It has a butterfly. Yeah, actually, that is very it's very like Mariah, Mariah Carey. And there's no real information yet, unfortunately, about what the notes. Well, it's are not launching till July. Fragrance. I know, but you'd think they would give us like a little bit of something. They're playing the <sighs> the long game here. I would say it's it's going to smell sweet. Okay. Powdery. Mm. Right. Floral. Yeah. Powdery is an interesting word for. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I feel like Dolly Parton would smell powdery. Speaking of one little thing, and I know this is another aside, I really, really, really want to get the By Killian fragrance that Rihanna apparently smells like and wears. Do you want to tell the story? I think this was in the cut, right? This was in the cut, but it's also been in Dumois. Rihanna apparently is like the best smelling celebrity. And what I find interesting is like Killian is like kind of a random... Not random. It's a very, very luxury, very, very niche fragrance brand um, started by an heir to the LVMH fortune named Killian Hennessy, I want to say. And the fragrance that she wears is called Love Don't Be Shy. And I want to smell it. I want to smell like it. If Oh, you know what? We should start like a Just Beauty Dumois. If anyone has like smelled another celebrity or like knows what a celebrity smells like, get at us or like a product that they use for like their trademark beauty look or something like that. Send us anonymous tips. We'll post them. But so far we have by Killian love. Don't be shy as worn by Rihanna. The notes for this fragrance in case anybody was wondering neroli, orange blossom and marshmallow. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds delicious. So there is this beauty blogger turned (laughs) QAnon supporter named Amanda Ensing. And she had worked with Sephora. Sephora this past week cut ties with Amanda as she has become less of a beauty influencer and more of a QAnon crazy person. And now the far right QAnon crowd is calling on Sephora, you know, like saying that this is just cancel culture and censorship and all these like bullshit arguments that 
people like that make. Well, these people are cancel culturing Sephora right now, though. <laughs> Trying to, Cause yeah. Because like, what happened was... Oh, God. She started a website called Make Makeup yeah, Great Again. Yeah, Make Makeup Great Again. She's just really oh. milking this for all it's worth. But she's not just like a cute... Not that there's anything... Uh, redeemable about being a QAnon conspiracy theorist, but she supported the attacks on the Capitol, which, by the way, five people died. Literally, these people tried to overthrow our government, and she's in favor of that. So, of course, Sephora is going to cut ties with her. Also, it should be said, Sephora did not actually reach out to her. I just find this interesting from a like marketer's perspective, how influencer relationships work at these huge, huge, huge global brands. It seems like obviously I'm sure there's like a bunch of different ways that they cast and work with influencers and different levels. But she actually was working with Sephora through reward style. So it was a reward style video for Sephora. But here's another one, though. In September of 2020, she had done some Savage Fenty modeling. No way. The Savage X ambassador tag. But apparently now, as of January 2021, Fenty and Amanda have unfollowed each other. That's right. It's crazy. It seems like she's getting a lot of news coverage, but have you ever heard of this news network called Newsmax? It's (laughs) a conservative. This is what freaks me out about the media landscape and how information is disseminated for Americans now. They have these like conservative only news organizations that like we've never even heard of. We don't even know that these conversations are happening. So it's like we wonder how all these people like planned the attack on the Capitol without anybody like, quote unquote, being aware of it. But it's all happening on these like networks and channels that we're just not dialed into because we get our news sources from places that are more palatable to us. And no, it's like every every little pot has its lid and like every opinion has its own network and like own feed and like never the two shall intersect speaking of we should clarify on our instagram (laughs) sometimes we post jokes and jeff bezos did not sign with img i think your mom thought that that was a real headline (laughs) that we had posted i know i did tag ivan bart who is the president of img models in the post just to sort of see maybe there's some work that he could get maybe there's like a zenya show that he could sit front row at i don't know just putting it out there but yeah jeff bezos is not um signed img yet anything else you want to say about amanda i don't support her i don't either this is also the first time i'd ever heard of her yeah me too I think also it's like she's like doubling down on all this bullshit probably because she feels like now she has to. No, she sees um, that it's like you look at people that are coming out of supporting her. It's not like I a guess. risk for her to it's do just this. It's depressing that like people would want this to be their brand. Conservatism and beauty. These are two. Di- <laughs> I'm trying to imagine another beauty brand that is like, quote unquote, conservative that would like possibly profit off of this. I know that one. Uh, the one who has like the Trump supporting founder who like oh, also yes. doubled down oh. on it. Um, Agent Nick. Okay, so get this. Nick found this out. This is not cancel culture. It's just like surprising, right? And it's only because they're yeah. so, vo- it's not like we dug around and found this out. The founder of this brand is super vocal about being anti-vax and yep. she's supporting Trump. She supports Trump. Interesting move. Yeah. And it's like this weird, like crunchy granola sold the detox market. You know, they make that deodorant, Agent Natur deodorant, which is really popular. But yeah, it's uh, it's weird that the founder would do that. Slash horrible. I think that's all the news that's fit to print this week. Again, I kind of love this idea. If anyone knows like a detail about a celebrity and like what scent they wear, what lipstick they wear, 
throw it over to us. We'll post it. One more thing, we our detective work, which I don't know if I found or you found or one of our readers found, but I think we all found it like literally within an hour of each other. Because did you see that somebody deemed it to us too? Yeah. So Haley yeah. Bieber is, in fact, launching a skincare line. She hasn't announced it officially, but maybe this is part of her like marketing genius. Like she knows that people know. It's called Road Beauty. She filed for trademark. Well, what's funny about this too is that in 2019, she filed to trademark Bieber Beauty. And then in 2021, she filed for Road, which is her middle name, R-H-O-D-E. And she filed in beauty, wellness, merch, bath and shower products, beauty creams, personal cleaning products, cosmetics, makeup, fragrances, hair care, and skin care. So smart. She has such great skin. She's the one celebrity that I'm like, I care about their skincare routine. But I think she's probably one of those people that was just like born with really great skin. That's what I think. But anyway, Road Beauty has its own Instagram. It's at Road. And there's not really any information other than that's a thing that's happening. The logo, I guess, is posted. It's like thick, all caps, black font with a creamy, tan, beigey background. (laughs) They're also following, Road is now following a very random assortment of people. They're only following 19 people, mm-hmm. including Skincare by Hiram. Smart. Namvo of the Nambo Glow. Dr. Barbara Sturm. Mm-hmm. Sporty and Rich. Interesting. Flex. And guess who else? And this is a great, a final great segue to cap off all of these great segues we've had. Hey, Michelle Lee. You mean our guest this week? The one and only Michelle Lee, editor-in-chief of Allure. We learned in speaking to her that it's no longer Allure magazine. It's no longer Allure.com. It's just Allure. And this is very true. Allure has become, under her leadership, much more than a magazine or an editorial platform. It's a beauty box. It's an awards it's a TV show. It's a production company. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. So we got some time with Michelle, and we were excited to talk to her, mostly because we are former, and I guess now current, beauty editors who made the transition to work on the brand side of things. And we wanted to sort of hear what she felt was the future of media, the future of Condé Nast, the future of beauty. She's awesome and super insightful, and I love her. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. It's nice to kind of talk shop and um, she's just so knowledgeable and (laughs) very like, I think we joked around on the call. She's like, she's media trained, (laughs) which normally we don't like, but she's media trained in a good way where she. Yeah, we tried to basically like I talked all the shit and she (laughs) didn't. So here's our interview. I was so excited to talk and just sort of hear about where do you think beauty media is at? Where do you think we are and where are we going and what will be left at the end of the day? Yeah. So we'll start with the big questions and we'll back into the, the easier questions. <laughs> that was a lot of questions. So I can't believe we haven't met either because I feel like for both of you, I've been watching your careers for literally years and I'm, I'm such a huge fan. So I'm, I'm super excited to be here. But yeah, I think in terms of beauty media, the thing that's been very cool and exciting to see has been all the different platforms that people have been on. So I've been in just media media for like 20, 25 years. And so back then, my first job in New York City was at Glamour. I started as an intern back when Ruth Whitney was the editor in chief. And 
as an editor-in-chief, you had one job. You had the magazine. Your whole day revolved around that. It revolved around picking the photos and setting up photo shoots and the writing and everything else. And I think about now the rounds of edits that things would go through. And even up until like the past five years, I think a lot of magazines were sort of operating that same way that you would write one story and I'm not kidding you, there would be 16 rounds of edits. Like it would pass from person to person to person to person. And we obviously don't have that luxury anymore of doing that. And I call it a luxury, but it's honestly, it's kind of inefficient. And so I just think about how much my day is so different from an editor-in-chief of 20 years ago. Like now as an editor-in-chief, you deal with not only the magazine, you've got the website, you have social media. Now I've been kind of playing around on Clubhouse and you guys have your podcast. We have our podcast. To me, that's kind of the exciting thing that it's no longer just confined to one thing that you're working on. Like you truly are talking about beauty and talking about culture in the world on so many different mediums. That to me is like the fun part. Do you feel like more you're running a media company than you are an editor in chief, like editing a magazine, so to speak? A hundred percent. So yeah. the funny thing is, so I just had in November my fifth anniversary at Allure and even in the past five years, I think when I first started, Allure was very much known as being a magazine. And so my first order of business was really, okay, how do I make sure that people see us not just as a magazine, but also as a digital entity? One of my first orders of business was, as an editor, don't say you're an editor at Allure magazine. You're an editor at Allure because we're an overall media brand. The funny thing is, though, it started to actually shift from there, where now I don't necessarily think of us as a media brand. I think of us as just a brand brand. And so that's been super helpful, I think, especially in this past year with COVID, where I think it's no big secret that within beauty media, advertising has been something that's been very rocky for a lot of media companies. And so for us, what's been great is that as a brand, I think that Allure is super diversified. Like we really look at so many different types of revenue. We look at so many different types of things. So as a business, I think we're great because we have the Allure Beauty Box. We've got this great licensing business. And so when I think about Allure, I don't necessarily think of us as just a media business anymore. I think of us as we can do a lot of different things. And so now you start to see there are a lot of media brands that are starting to think of themselves much more like that. We could produce TV shows. We could do full-length feature films. We could have products. It's sort of endless, honestly. I worked at Condé Nast when I was an editor at Women's Wear Daily. It was funny. I worked at Hearst as well. You know, some might say Hearst did a better job more quickly adopting new media strategies and digital stuff. But what I always found with Condé Nast is like they were just better at making a magazine. These are people who loved magazines. Cy Newhouse loved magazines. He hired editors who really adored the written word and had a respect for it. And you would just get this incredibly high quality magazine. But after magazines... There weren't a lot of voices who were able to support like the new and the next and to encourage innovation outside of like traditional magazine making. I was going to actually ask about that because something I was always kind of curious about with like, for instance, Vogue.com and like Condé in magazines, like you said, things used to go through 16 rounds of edits and the budgets were so insane. So insane. <laughs> and this is like totally outside looking in because I do not come from the magazine world. I've always just been digital first media. I am used to the scrappiness, the no filter like type of content, which performs very well online. I feel like Allure was able at Condé to really like transition to be online and be okay with, well, you tell me, were, were you guys like okay with the imperfection? Like what was that transition like? Yeah. Well, I think 
what helped that was that my job right before I came to Allure was at Nylon. Where there are no rules. There are no rules. <laughs> no budgets, and, no and rules. And no budget. Exactly. So <laughs> we talk about scrappy, like, but like everyone cared about Nylon so much when we were working on each issue. We cared so much about it. We were there sometimes until four o'clock in the morning and people were not complaining. Like we wanted to make it really great. And so we would be on the floor sometimes like cutting out things so scrappy, literally making craft projects. And so then when I came to Allure, and even though, yes, I think Allure's budgets now are, are much smaller than they were, let's say, 20 years ago or whatever, like it was still like a much bigger budget than I was used to. I was like, oh my God, you guys, we have so much opportunity here. We can do so many cool things. And like Allure, there's something about the Condé magazines where as an editor, it's just much easier to get things. It's access and access is a currency too. Oh, it's totally access to celebrities for cover stars, models, products even, photographers, everything. It comes with a little bit of a balance though too because then there is a much higher expectation for certain things as well. My first week, honestly, that was sort of when I was like, okay, you guys, we have to streamline some of these processes. I remember this is like one of my favorite stories to tell. Like my first week to put together the magazine, people were still printing photos to go on every single page. So it would kind of go around in a binder. So for every story, you would get this binder of photos. Like there was an assistant who was like constantly printing out stuff. And so it would go from the creative director, design director, photo director, da, da, da. And so people would put a little post-it note on the photo that they liked for that story. And then it would go to the editor-in-chief and like she would also like pick, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that was probably at least 50 binders that were going around and you'd have to do that. So I was like, I don't ever want to see paper like this again. And so my first week, we changed the whole process. Everything became digital. How do you do that? How I just, do you do that? I don't want to do it. I just said, I don't want to do it. And so, so you know, <laughs> we, we had to figure it out. And I think for that week, people were kind of like, well, this is kind of crazy. We can't do it like this. This isn't how we've done it before. And so we switched to Slack. And so we now do all of our approvals for layouts, for photos, for everything, stories, all on Slack. Everything literally is digital, which has certainly helped us in this time where we're all working from home. That's just really, I, I maybe I'm getting into the weeds, but like just knowing how these media organizations work, affecting that kind of a change, like taking away the binders that the editor takes home every night just to like review stories and sign off on pages. And that is not an easy task. It's not easy, but I will say everyone adapted really quickly. And so even though there was some resistance at first where I think some people were like, I don't know how this is going to work. When we went from the 16 edits to many fewer, I think people were like, but the quality, the quality. And then within a couple of weeks, to be honest with you, I had a lot of people saying, okay, I was unsure about this at first, but I actually think it's much more efficient now. Do you think that the quality's gone gone down is too easy, like simple of a, a way of thinking of it? But do you think the 16 edits resulted in a different story than the two edits did? No, I have a strong opinion about that, honestly, because having been through those 16 edits, what happens is people feel like they have to say something to prove why they have a job. And it doesn't necessarily make it better. It just makes it different. So you end up having so many cooks in the kitchen and too many opinions, honestly. Like if you had a strong top editor who has a very strong opinion and they have a, a great vision of what that story should be, and they can help that writer shape it into that, that's kind of all you need. You, you do need like the checks and balances of 
you know, the couple of things that we absolutely are still like staunch believers in is fact-checking, super, super strong fact-checking on all Allure stories. We obviously have copy edit. We do have a couple layers on those really meaty stories, which I still think is like very important. But by cutting it down, I just think that there's a stronger vision sometimes. So if the process has become more efficient and then now you're a brand brand and not just a magazine, do people's roles expand to like touch, you know, okay, now you have like a digital part of your job and now you're like doing things on social and working on the box or now do you have like a huge team working on everything? Oh, no. (laughs) We definitely don't have a huge team working on it. I wish we did. We have a pretty tight team and everyone does everything. And it's great. Like, I feel like that's the future of where everything is going. And so for anyone on my team, I always say to them, if you have an interest in something else, let me know, because I would love to be able to give you the opportunity to learn something. And so I've had like a bunch of people on my staff who've completely shifted their entire careers into new things because they got a little taste of something. It's kind of a cool time to be in. And I'm honestly, I'm always super inspired by people like you who have taken this career and then pivoted into other things. And we have actually a couple former Allure editors. There was one Allure editor who we talked to recently who became a dermatologist. She was like so inspired by everything she was learning at Allure that she was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go to medical school and become a dermatologist. So now she's a, a working dermatologist. And then another one of my colleagues two years ago decided to go get her MBA And now she's going to be an investment banker, but also working in beauty because she sort of saw that there's so many mergers and acquisitions and stuff within beauty that like, Mm -hmm. why not take the knowledge of what we have here and then turn it into something else? So to be able to sort of see the different things in the world that you can do with this like beauty editor knowledge is is very awesome. Well, it's storytelling. At the end of the day, it's all creating a compelling narrative and getting someone excited and putting in images that are like titillating and you know, evocative. Yeah. Well, you know what it is too. I think a lot of times people will get into this career because they're like, I'm a creative. And then they sort of turn off the business side of their mind. But honestly, anytime you move up the ladder, you end up intersecting with business. So I think everyone honestly has to like learn and just open themselves up to learning about finance and business and the economy because like it'll help you no matter what. Yeah. I think that this idea of like being a pure creative is a total like pipe dream. What even is that? Like the most successful creatives, artists of all time have always been like excellent marketers, right? I've always been so hard on myself about that though. Like, have you not been? Like, I I remember just like being, there was one story I wrote at L, which was my first time not writing in the fashion department. I wrote a profile of Janice Min, who at the time had just taken on the editor in chief role at the Hollywood Reporter and was kind of like revamping the entire thing into the magazine it is now. I had to take a week of my vacation to write it because my boss, who shall remain nameless, who actually I'm still friends with, was like, this is not part of our department. Like, you're not writing this on my time. So I had to take a week of vacation sitting in my little apartment and trying to write this article. I realized in this week of like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. sitting at my computer that like I was not a pure creative, that I was like just not like... This idea of like sitting in an apartment in New York City, looking out the window and writing, just like letting the words spill out was like not, I was never going to be successful at that. And I I beat myself up so hard. I don't think anyone is that though. There are a handful of people who are truly prolific 
easy writers who it just like comes out of them. I think David Remnick one time, like people have talked about, like he's so prolific. It just literally flows out of him. He is like a unicorn. Every other writer who I know, it is such a painful process. And then once you get what they wrote, it's amazing. But then when you talk to them, they're like, it was so painful. I hate writing. (laughs) What I also realized in retrospect, too, is I think the people who choose to be writers as their career have amnesia. You know, it's like childbirth where you wouldn't do it again if you remember how painful the experience was. And so like my friend Irina Alexander, who's a wonderful writer, she and I would sit next to each other at L. And we'd both have the same terrible experience of writing, which is like when you doubt yourself and you hate yourself and you can't believe you wrote this stupid thing. But then after it would come out and she would get great feedback and she'd be like, oh, like, okay, I'm ready to do it again. I'd be like, how can you be ready to do it again? That was like the worst experience (laughs) I've ever had. But what would you say your biggest skills are now? So now you've kind of done everything. You've, You've evolved the Allure brand into this multifaceted company. What are you best at and what do you like doing the best? Well, I definitely don't like writing the best, I'll tell you that. (laughs) And as someone with three kids, I definitely understand the pregnancy amnesia thing too. To be honest, I think I'm a great marketer. What I've shaped myself into has been taking a look at a brand and being able to reinvent it. And that's what excites me. And so like with Allure, this year actually we're celebrating our 30th anniversary. So it's like been 30 years of like beauty journalism. And so when you kind of distill down to what the core of Allure is, is that it invented beauty journalism. It was super strong on reporting and like looked at beauty in a way that could be any subject. And so we kind of kept that main core intact, but then added on other things too. So for us in like the past five years, diversity and inclusion and representation has been super, super important. Like we were doing covers like Helen Mirren and declaring the end of anti-aging. And we were the first like mainstream women's magazine to have Halima Adden in like her hijab on the cover. And so we were doing these things that at that time were not necessarily being done by others. Now it seems hard to like remember because everyone's like super into like doing bold covers and showcasing diversity and stuff. But I think in that sense, one of my strengths has been that I'm okay taking risks. It's okay for me that We sort of got really political for a while, let's say, during the Trump era, and it was okay. I got tons of angry emails and tweets and sometimes handwritten letters written to me about stop with the politics, I'm canceling my subscription, blah, blah, blah. But like, I feel like in that sense, I have a pretty tough skin. And when you're running a brand and you are trying to make change, a lot of times you have to have a thick skin that you can sort of like weather that and that you understand that what you're doing is the right thing. What do you think it is about beauty as a category that makes it such a – I mean, by the way, Nick and I totally agree with you on this – that makes it such a perfect kind of medium or like jumping off point for these conversations in a way that like other categories – like I guess like sports gets pretty political, I guess, but beauty is often looked at as this kind of like superficial, girly – you know, it's written off all the time. Like you mentioned, like somebody going off and getting her MBA after – being an Allure editor, it's so important for me that people take beauty more seriously. They don't realize that it's like a trillion zillion dollar industry, like, and it's global. And you're starting these conversations. Like, what do you think it is about like the beauty category that makes it the perfect place for that? I so agree with you. And it's like one of my huge pet peeves of when people think that beauty is just superficial. There is absolutely a layer of beauty that's superficial. And I love that layer too. Don't get me wrong. But I think of beauty as being 
it's really deep because if you really, again, like think about what is beauty, it's all about our external appearance. And so that has to do with your identity. It's your gender. It is your body. It's your your race, your skin color, your hair texture, everything. And so all of these conversations that we've been having, especially in this past year, those are all things that relate to beauty in a sense. And so, you know, again, when I got this job five years ago, I kind of went through that exercise of being like, what is beauty? I think it was very eye-opening for me because I, way back then, I guess I still used Facebook sometimes. And so I posted on Facebook that, you know, I'm starting at Allure. And so I remember I had a couple distant relatives reach out and be like, oh, so what does it mean to be the editor-in-chief? That was like one question I got. And also, oh, awesome. So that means you're going to be like testing like lipsticks and stuff. And you know, again, it opened my eyes to what people think our job is. And that absolutely, like I said, testing lipsticks is a big part of my job and I I love it so much. But I thought it has to be more than that. And so when I like really dove into what is beauty, it, it is all those things that I mentioned that it's like, you know, we can have these conversations about skin color and about body and everything else. And those are such super deep and like emotional, personal discussions to have. I also love beauty because it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's like, sure, like think that it's like just talking about under eye moisturizer and like lipstick. Good. Let me like go make a brand and like sell it. The thing that kills me about people thinking that beauty is just superficial is that there's so much science in beauty too, that people don't really understand that you can like go super deep on the science of things as well. And business, you know, Annie, you were mentioning it's like, it's like trillions and trillions of dollars. Like we just did our February cover and our whole issue was about the business of beauty. And so we had Pat McGrath on our cover and just looking at the whole business of what people have created. And luckily now I think people are starting to come around. Like I've talked to so many founders who, you know, they were so discouraged early on because they would go into meetings with investors and and they just totally didn't get it. Like it was all just a bunch of guys in suits and they were like, nope, next. And so now finally that people realize like how big of an industry this is, people are being taken more seriously. But that's only happened in the past couple of years. We've like talked to a bunch of founders about this, like when they're pitching their brands. And it's kind of understandable that if you're an investor, sure, you're trying to make good business decisions and sort of like look at market trends. But at the end of the day, you have to have some sort of an emotional connection to the thing that you're investing sometimes millions of dollars in. And if you can't relate to the problem that X product is trying to solve, or, you know, like something like that, then you're just not going to get it. It's it's almost not your own fault that you just can't get it, you know? So with Into the Gloss, I remember it was always like, oh, my wife likes beauty products, you know, or something like that. And now, you know, I think it's better that we're in a place where the wives are in the pitch room. So it's like, <laughs> yes. like oh, I get it. Like, because I want to be able to do that thing with my skincare or my makeup or like, oh, yeah, I, there isn't a product for that thing. So like, we're, we kind of have gotten somewhere. Yeah. I have another question. Were you... When you were hired, the youngest, what what were your superlatives at Condé Nast? I don't think I was the youngest. The funny thing is people always think I'm younger than I am. I'm 45. And so- I'll take what you're, <laughs> what you're having. I remember getting invites to things like- 30 under 30. It was like panels, <laughs> speaking on panels as like a millennial. I was like, I'm actually not a millennial. <laughs> so I don't think I was the youngest. I was not like the first Asian American editor-in-chief or anything, I was just me. Like, I don't know that I necessarily had those superlatives. I do think of myself as one of the first editors-in-chief at Condé, I guess, who really thought 
everything, like not just print and digital, but really thought about like where else can we go with this brand? So funnily enough, like five years ago, almost all, like not all, but like a lot of the EICs at Condé were these, it was like Graydon Carter, you had Cindy Levy, like people who'd been there for a really long time and they were like these legacy, like huge iconic editors-in-chief. And so as time has gone on, not just at our company, but at other companies too, like you've seen a lot of like turnover of editors-in-chief and now people who are in charge really are thinking like very much digital. They're thinking a lot of different things. But I do think that I was part of that first wave to kind of come on and like really think seriously about digital. You know, you'll be the editor-in-chief of Allure forever. But say you weren't, what else would you do? What else do you want to do? Would you start your own thing? What's like? Well, I used to say, like my husband and I used to have that that conversation that a lot of people have of like, you know, if you won the Powerball, would you still work? And I used to say, oh yeah, I think I would still work. Now I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm like, I would retire. We would move to Hawaii. I would just like, you know, do nothing. Barring that though. So if I didn't win the lottery, I actually am very interested in TV. Like I think that if I were an executive producer on a, a series or something, that would be very exciting to me. Or I do think that the world of finance does interest me. Like I think that I've been kind of eyeing a little bit more the world of like VCs and stuff. And I'm I'm interested. It's not to say that I would ever, you know, make the jump over there, but I'm interested enough that I kind of keep my eye on things. And I am interested enough that I, I read a lot and I'll, I'll listen to things about that world. I mean, you're in such a unique position in that you understand sort of like the business machinations of a beauty brand, but you also understand what an editor and what the media is looking for. You would be such a an asset like as an advisor or as like a sort of editor in residence or something. But I don't know if the VCs are, are I don't know if they're there yet or are they? Yeah. Well, I think even more than that is we as beauty editors understand what an audience is going to like too. And so that's the thing that's like really important to any like finance person is they want to understand how to like catch people's eyeballs and like what's going to be popular. I don't know that VCs are there yet. I think had you asked me that question two or three years ago, my answer probably would have been I would start my own brand. I think I've kind of changed my opinion about that. Like I'm in this weird space right now of where, you know, when we were in the office, we would get, I mean, you guys know this, like you get so many products, right? But it has gotten so out of control in the past two or three years where it's too much. It's like there are so many new brands, so many new products constantly being launched that I used to be able to see like the white space in things. And I think that there is still, there's always white space in every industry. But I just think there has to be a shakeout at some point where some of these brands and product, like it just needs to go away. And like we need to reach a point where we're kind of like this and then we'll have some new stuff that's like coming out that's exciting. But I'm not as excited about the idea of like launching a brand anymore. You know, you're the editor-in-chief of Valor, among other things. You are getting all the products months before they're, released, probably even before other magazine editors are getting products. Can you sort of play Nostradamus with us for a minute and just tell us what the future looks like? And we'll start with skincare. The future, I think, is, you know, every dermatologist out there is like very into vitamin C and retinol, right? Like if you talk to any derm, they're always like vitamin C during the day, retinol at night. I think we're going to start to see some innovation in the way that those things are formulated because it's not necessarily like there always will be new ingredients, but everything kind of comes back to those things. I've already started to see some of this, which I don't think I can talk about, but basically people taking, you know, again, that core ingredient of let's say vitamin C 
but doing it in a way that makes it more easily absorbed in your skin or you can use like a higher percentage of it and it's totally fine. Like I think we're going to start to see some innovation with ingredients. I think beauty tech is going to continue to sort of flourish and blossom. A lot of it's not there yet though. Like if yeah. You, can you talk about that? Like what? Because I always kind of laugh at beauty tech. And people ask me all the time like what works? And I'm yeah. like, you know what? Like this has NASA technology. Like yeah. that's just what I read on the box. But you know what it is? It's all V1 stuff where it's not quite for the user yet, but it's like cool. So you can sort of see the future. So for example, you know, everyone's been talking about 3D printing, that one day in the future, you're going to be able to have a little machine where it just 3D prints your makeup for the day or like whatever. We're so not there yet, but the idea of it is definitely cool and it'll get there. Some of like the skincare devices that I've seen recently are good in theory, but then I use them and I'm like, it's fine. Like it's not really doing that much. I think we're in its infancy, though, because I do think that, again, like thinking about where the money is going, like there's a lot of money from the big companies, but also like some of the smaller players that's being put into that space. So I do think that, again, if we're looking five, 10 years down the line, I do think that there's going to be something cool and interesting to come out of that just because there's so much interest and money. When those things converge, something usually big will happen. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I'm not super wowed by some of it yet. When people ask me, like, what devices I do like, I do like my new face. I do believe in that and I believe it works. My problem is, though, like a lot of people who I've talked to, I just don't use it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the big hurdles, too, is that even if you find something that you like that's like a beauty tech device, you have to use it for it to do something. Right. Do you think Botox and filler will become even more sort of like commonplace? So it will go from Medispas to, you know, bodegas? about bodegas necessarily, but I do think that if you look at in Korea, the way that they use, let's say, Botox and fillers, they use it in such different ways that it's not necessarily just, you know, doing in your forehead in certain places. Like they use it almost like a, a skincare treatment that it's like all like the little tiny needles that it's like you're getting that plump chuck chuck skin. And so, you know, things tend to sort of happen over there and then they'll kind of make their way over here. And obviously, you know, things have to go through approvals and stuff here. I think we're going to start to see more different ways of using Botox and fillers. But yeah, I even see like super, super young generations and stuff. And anyone basically younger than me, in my generation, it's like people still don't talk about it. Like everyone still has sort of this level of like shame for some reason. Whereas it's like I see anyone who's in their 20s and stuff who there's – I don't really see the shame in it. It's like a TikTok montage of yeah, like when exactly. I got my like lips done. It's not done. a big deal like with like lip fillers and stuff, like just the number of people who were sharing like themselves getting lip fillers. There's a girl, Meredith Duxbury, who's like big on TikTok. She showed herself getting lip fillers. And then for all of her videos after that, for like the next couple of weeks, she had like a big like bloody spot on her lip. So then people were like, what happened to your lip? And she's like, it's from my fillers. And so there's just not that level of shame that people used to feel that they had to hide away. What about makeup? Makeup, I feel like we've been through this weird time period of where, like I said, there's so much stuff, right? Like two years ago, it was out of control. Like the number of brands who were, it felt like weekly putting out a new palette, right? And I was like, oh my God, like this has to stop. And I, I get the pressure to feel like they have to keep producing new things because you need something new to be able to promote on Instagram and then to, you know, make people see things and stuff. I think we're kind of reaching this point now of where I'm seeing much more happening with a little bit more simplicity, where people are putting out a little bit like 
some fewer numbers of like palettes and stuff. And so for example, like Merit Beauty came out and that's all about minimalist beauty and like having a smaller routine. I'm starting to see that a little bit more in skincare too, that there are more things being released where it's like, it's only three steps. This is all we're going to have, blah, blah, blah. Like I do feel like there's there's kind of this desire among part of the audience, I think, to simplify things a bit. This is sort of an aside, but you know, like Jeffree Star Cosmetics, obviously, and Nikita Dragon Cosmetics, and there are all these like cosmetics brands that are independent that were launched by influencers, Christine Dominique, you know, like all these brands, they seem to kind of exist outside of traditional media coverage. Like, you know, I've never seen a Jeffree Star palette. I've never seen a Nikita Dragon palette in a magazine or on a, you know, birdie.com. Like, why do you think that is? How is a Jeffree Star making so much money and yet completely sort of ignore? in some ways ignored? Even Kylie, there was a joke on Twitter that was like, Kylie Cosmetics has to be a money laundering. Like, she comes out with new (laughs) stuff every week, but I never see anybody actually using this stuff. Yeah, well... I mean, with Jeffree Star, for example, I think that's a conscious effort among <laughs> among a bunch of us that we, we don't cover him. But, you know, it's the power of social and it's the power of YouTube, honestly, that it's like Kylie has, I don't remember how many Instagram followers she has, but it's a lot. Yeah. And so if you reach that audience just with like one Instagram post, you have to imagine then people are searching and they get straight to your website and it's kind of okay to live outside of the traditional in those cases. Yeah, it's been interesting to see because I feel like there are a couple, you know, if you look at a list of like, you know, popular brands and stuff, sometimes there are those ones that pop up there that I'm like, wow, that's so surprising because they really are not necessarily on our radar. But it just goes to prove that it's like there's an audience for for anything. Yeah. Are they reaching out to you? Or are they like sending? Occasionally. Like I think that sometimes. It's such a closed system in some ways. Sorry to interrupt, but like if you don't have the right PR person, it's going to be hard to access an editor in, in a somewhat traditional media role. I think they're not even trying though. Yeah. Too. Like I, I think they're kind of okay living outside of the realm of, you know, sort of like the media system. And if it's working for them, great. You know, there are certainly other influencer lines that do contact us. And certainly, like, there have been a lot of collaborations. Like, when Morphe does their collabs and stuff like that, they tend to reach out. But, yeah, the ones who are just sort of strictly started as, like, influencer only, like, D to C, like, those sort of, like, exist on their own. It's so interesting how that how that works. That was a good question, Nick. Well, I always, I'm always (laughs) wondering about it. Like, I always, and well, also, like, do you know, what's the story with Morphe? What is Morphe? Who who is Morphe? <laughs> who started Morphe? Is it like know. Jeff Bezos? The Morphe family. <laughs> I, I actually don't know. No one um, does. They're not know. an advertiser, right? No. But they're like a juggernaut. I don't even yeah. know what that word means, but I think they're a juggernaut. They are definitely a juggernaut. The thing that I think is really interesting about them too is that they have their brick and mortar locations. Like they sort of are like the old, like how Mac has like their locations yeah. and it's like... They are sort of one foot in the influencer world, but also still, you know, that's a pretty traditional thing to have like a brick and mortar location. Store. Yeah, I think they've been they've been smart about some of their collabs. I don't know. Maybe that should be like a story we should work on. Like who the I, hell I, is- We tried. We got shut down. But what, how about this? We'll do an Eyewitness Beauty X Allure collab and we can definitely use the Allure name to get Morphe on the record. <laughs> an investigation. Exactly. Notice how she didn't agree to that. <laughs> no, no. You're like the most media trained person ever. I've said, I've like been the one talking about like all this shit. And Michelle's like, yep. Um, anyway, 
<laughs> Here's my last question, which is who's the next Glossier? What's the next like generation defining brand in the beauty space? Oh, that's such a good question. Do you see any potentials? It's so hard because I think Glossier came around at a time when the market wasn't as saturated. Do you know what I mean? Like, I truly think it was different back then. I make it sound like it was so long ago. It wasn't that long ago. But just everything that's happened even in the past five years, I think it's so much harder for a brand to really rise like to the super, super top in that way. Like, I think now... There are a lot of like interesting Gen Z brands, let's say like topicals and stuff who I think are, are so interesting. I don't know that they're necessarily going to reach the level of like a Glossier because I think there's so much competition now, not only for dollars, but there's real competition for like attention too. That it's like on Instagram, let's say, in order to like gain a huge following or on TikTok or something, it's, it's so much harder because you're competing with so many different things. And the algorithm is like tamped down on the like water flow. I mean, whatever clean beauty is, right? Like I think clean beauty obviously is not even going to be a category anymore at some point because I think it's just going to be a given that every product has to be free of certain things. But I think there are certain brands like Ilia, let's say, that I think are really interesting and they definitely have like created a big following. I'm kind of like watching some companies like that. Again, I don't think that any of those brands are necessarily going to reach the heights of Glossier though. Because it's also like creating a culture and a cult around the brand, which I think is a hard thing to actively construct. It sort of happens or it doesn't. It's like Urban Decay, it, it happened. You know, Hard Candy, it happened. Stila, it happened. You know, it's like trying to make a viral video. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I mean, Pat McGrath is not new. I'm not saying, suggesting that, but I think there's definitely like a cult around Pat and her products. And like, it really is a culture that's sort of been like formulated there. And so, like I said, I think that when it comes to makeup, I feel like it's probably Pat. I don't know. That's such a good question. Do you guys have like companies that you think are popping up as like the next big thing? Uh, that's such a good think. question. I mean, there's different reasons why companies for me are like interesting. I guess like in beauty, I love hearing these stories where like they've hacked the system in a way like hims and hers, you know, the patents ran out on Viagra, right? And then they swooped in and like created a millennial, you know, <laughs> D to C Viagra brand and grew it really quickly and became super successful. That kind of stuff I get really like into. I don't know if that like counts as like straight beauty or if it's more like totally wellness, but that kind of stuff I love. And then I don't know, I guess like as a, you know, millennial, I very much recognize that we're all getting older we're seeing stuff like beauty concerns that like were not a thing that are normally associated with millennials. And I think in the way that millennials like really grew beauty and innovated the category in so many ways for good and for bad, I think that that's like about to happen in beyond just like fillers and procedures that you can just go in, in and out. I think like we're going to see like a lot more boom in procedures that, you know, plastic surgery in a way, like yeah. you mentioned, like in Korea, they're so much more advanced in like what they do in the doctor's office. And I feel like millennials are going to demand more and more of that when it comes to like, you know, hey, like I just had a kid, what does plastic surgery look like for me? Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity in just hearing you talk, Annie, like in creating a brand around that. There are a lot of doctor brands, but doctor brands are not totally accessible to a lot of people. And so I think creating a brand around filler and Botox would be like a genius yeah. thing. 
And the genius thing about that business is you don't have to be a doctor to it. Well, you have to have a doctor like sign off on your clinic, but you don't have to be a doctor. You can be a PA, you can be an MP. Yeah. Do you guys know what Bonti is? Mm-mm. How so do you spell Bonti, it? Bonti, it's B-O-N-T-I. So Allergan bought Bonti a couple of years ago, I want to say. And so what Bonti is, is it's sort of like a faster acting version of Botox. Meaning like it doesn't take three days? Yep. So if you had a wedding to go to over the weekend or something, you might get Bonti and it's like, it just works fast. It works much faster than Botox, but it also wears off fast. So then if you're someone who's nervous about getting Botox, you might get that because it's like a good tester of like, okay, do I like this? It'll like ease me into then like getting Botox, but they haven't released it yet because after Allergan bought it, I think they're still going through like approvals and stuff like that. But I do think that once that comes out, it's going to sort of change like people's attitudes also about how they do things. And it opens up this whole other business of these like not even clinics. Like it really will just be like a, a salon appointment that you go in, you get your bonti, and then great, you're ready for your red carpet event or for your wedding or whatever. So I definitely can see that. I think the other thing is not even thinking about consumer products. Like I think consumer products are very interesting and we we obviously always have our eye on those. But like I said about like beauty tech, I think there's also an element of platforms and social media and stuff. And so I know someone who's the co-founder of this new live streaming. It's like a beauty live streaming platform called Newness. And so she and her co-founder both came from Twitch. So it's basically Twitch for beauty. And so, you know, out in Asia and other parts of the, the world, obviously live streaming is so much bigger than it is here. Like everyone here kind of does like Instagram lives and stuff like that. But in Asia, it's about you do all your shopping on live stream. You just constantly are watching streaming. So I do find that that is part of the beauty world that isn't necessarily always thought of. But that's the part of thing that's going to really grow too. Because, you know, everyone or not everyone, but most people would love to be an influencer and make their living doing that and da da whatever. How crazy is it that your kids and my kid, <laughs> who is yet to be born, is going to grow up thinking an influence, like that's a career. You know, it's like, I'll be a doctor, a lawyer, or an influencer. Oh, it's a totally <laughs> valid career path yeah. now. Absolutely. But the more that people want to be influencers, it's like the more that there are platforms that they can kind of create stuff on and that that is possibly a valid career path. Because thinking about how much money like those Twitch streamers make, it's wild. It's crazy. So I do think that that part of the industry is really interesting too. So you have three kids. Mm-hmm. What are their ages? So I have a massive age gap. So my oldest is 15. My middle one is 12. And then my baby is turning one in a couple of weeks. What are the rules as it pertains to makeup yep. in the house? Like when can they start to wear? My daughter, Gabby, who's my 12-year-old, about three years ago started really getting into makeup with her friends because they would watch videos and stuff like that. And they they knew how to do everything. They were like contouring and stuff. <laughs> and so I remember I did their makeup for one Halloween. Like they were going as vampires, like vampire zombies was like their thing. And one of Gabby's friends was like, can you do a cat eye on me? <laughs> and I was like, how cute. So I was like doing like a cat eye on, on these little kids. But they knew so much about makeup. They all wanted the new Morphe palettes and stuff. And so for me, I have no problem with it. I am not a strict mom in that I'm like no makeup, blah, blah. If she said to me, Back then, mommy, can I wear this to school or something? I would be totally fine with it. To me, it's more that we try and instill that there should be no pressure into doing those things, right? And this is how I feel in general about stuff, that you shouldn't feel pressured by anyone, by your friends, by society, by anyone else at school, that you have to look a certain way. You shouldn't feel like you have to wear makeup, that you have to do your hair a certain way. 
I have tried to instill in her that makeup is about creativity. And so if you want to have fun and like you want to do, she did like a, a rainbow ombre eye on herself. I'm like, that's so cute. And like, she didn't want to wear it to school. She doesn't want to wear it anywhere else. She just wants to do it for herself and like, you know, do her TikToks and stuff. And I'm totally cool with that. I have no problem. Okay, that's good advice. I'm like thinking about how to raise a girl because I have no idea how to. Are you having a girl? Yeah, we're having a girl in 22 days. <gasps> well, I will say for all three of mine, I went two weeks early. So just be ready at any point. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't think we are. So that can happen because that wouldn't fit in our scheduling. Oh, no. Even this last time around, even though I've been through this, like, this is my third time, when I started going into labor and having contractions, I was literally in denial. Like, I was sitting there, and I remember saying to my oldest, my son, I was like, I think maybe I'm in labor. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't think I am. I can't be. And lo and behold, I was. <sighs> okay. So I'll, I'll go um, wash some more baby clothes then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Thank you guys so much. It was so fun. This was really fun. So tell us about your podcast and when you release new episodes. Yeah. So our podcast, our new one is called The Science of Beauty. And it's myself and our executive beauty director, Jenny Bailly. And so every episode, we focus on a different topic. Like our first one was on sunscreen. We've done an episode on pores. We kind of moved into hair at some point too and did scalp, which was a really interesting episode. So every Thursday, we release new episodes. We took a little bit of a hiatus around the holidays, but we're back on. And our next three that we're doing are all K-beauty related. Cool. Amazing. Now, Annie, I think I, I was thinking about this the other day. I think this is your favorite segment of every week, which is product of the week. It's not just mine. I think it's everyone's. This is actually my least favorite segment of the week because it's very stressful to come up with products that I haven't yet recommended because authenticity is important to us. And I don't like just, you know, shouting out products that... That you don't actually stand for. Right. And actually, I mean, maybe you'd be surprised, maybe not, but my beauty routine is pretty minimal, especially nowadays. But I guess, do you want me to go first? Yeah. So to contrast everything I just said, I was just sent this product and I've only used it a couple of times, but I'm so impressed with it off the bat that I do think it's worth talking about. This is for all the skincare armchair experts that appreciate the nuances of a texture in a formula that understand the beautiful elegance in which a cream serum gel absorbs into your skin, the perfect amount of stickiness, the perfect amount of dewiness, it doesn't pill, the perfect amount of hydration. The product I want to talk about this week, it's new, it's from Tatcha, it's $88, and it is called the Dewy Serum. And they sent it to me. And it's amazing. Yeah, they sent it to me. So nice. We don't really get products sent to us because nice. nobody really listens to podcasts no. that work in beauty, <laughs> which I'm not complaining about. I actually prefer not to get sent boxes and boxes of stuff. As you guys like probably just heard on the interview with Michelle Lee, it is like kind of an issue. Yeah, but not for me. So if you want to send me boxes of things like. You know what I really want? I'm going to be like a thirsty girl and like email Byredo's PR for that new palette. But anyway, back to. Tatcha, the dewy serum, it's a three-in-one serum that resurfaces with lactic acid, plumps with hyaluronic acid, and locks in moisture with squalane for smoother, plumper, dewier skin. And the texture 
is really interesting. It's like a jelly cream that's like, again, the perfect amount of like stickiness. And it's beautiful. I mean, Tatcha is very, they don't cut corners, right? And how does it already, it already has 872 reviews on their website and it's five perfect stars. I really do think that this is like up there. It, it'll be up there with Estee Lauder's, what's their like most famous serum that I like? Advanced Night Repair. Right. Oof, that, that's a big, that's a big, uh, that's a big idea. Right, you heard it here first. I think this is my daytime Advanced Night Repair. I like it. So my, I mean, as you said, like it's hard every single week to come up with a beauty product that you're obsessed with. And we try to keep it like to things we're only obsessed with and nothing less than that. This week, my product is not a beauty product. So I got an Apple watch, probably like the second generation that they came out and I wore it for like a few days and like it was kind of bulky. It was heavy. It didn't really like give me any information that I didn't have like on my phone And the six came out, it had all these health features like your blood oxygen level. If you work out, it can tell your heart rate and it can tell you to move if you've been sitting, like all these different sort of functionalities and features. So I got the new Apple Watch 6 and I got the Millionaire stainless steel silver band, which like with the stainless steel face, it looks really cool. It's silver on silver and it You know, like I thought it was going to be cheesy that it would tell me things like to breathe or to stand up for a little bit or, you know, it would be disruptive. But it's actually like quite soothing, especially working from home to like have little reminders to stand up. And the haptics, I think it's called, which are the, you know, like subtle vibrations and sounds that it makes have also been smoothed out. So it's not super loud or jarring. It's just like a nice subtle tap that you should do something and I wear it when I work out and I wear it all day. And I think it looks really chic. I'm really into my Apple Watch now. And I never was before. Apple take all my money, I guess. Now, I actually have a reader submitted product of the week. Our friend Israel wrote in. He says in all caps, this tool is life changing. The tool that he is talking about is the Dermapore pore extractor and serum infuser by the brand Dermaflash. This is a device, it's an ultrasonic device that exfoliates and cleans debris from pores to enhance the penetration of active ingredients, according to Heyday's website, where they sell it. It is $99, and it has a bunch of great reviews. Israel says it basically vibrates the gunk out of your pores. I've always had very large pores on my nose and the skin around my nose because I wear glasses and this has shrunk them drastically. Thank you so much, Israel. Remember, as a reader, we want you to submit your own product of the week. Just tell us a little bit about yourself so that others like you might try the product because like we always say, no product is for everyone. So I think that's it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to our producer, Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our album art is, as always, designed by Simon Abronowitz. And our theme music is by Danny Prezant. Research assistance is by Alicia Bansall. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty, or you can write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we'll talk to you then. Bye, everyone. Ciao for now. Bye.